0: Verses 4 and 5 in the twelfth chapter of the gospel according to St. Luke. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do, but I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, Fear him. Now we are meeting together like this Sunday by Sunday in order to consider this great message that is here before us in the Bible. And we do so, of course, as living in this world as it is at this present time. We are not met together to forget the world in which we are living. We are met together here to know how to live in it and how to live triumphantly in it. And how to be more than conquerors in spite of everything that is true of it and in it at this present time. And we've been looking at this whole situation. Here's the whole problem of life, isn't it? How can we live in a world like this? And especially at a time such as this. Why is the world as it is? These are the questions. And I'm laying it down as a proposition that the supreme tragedy in the world at this hour is not so much that men are making these horrible bombs that may blow up the whole world at any moment. That's not the greatest tragedy. The tragedy is that the world won't listen to this message. Dismisses it in various ways. And we've been trying to consider why this is, so that we may disabuse the minds of any who are in that position. Here's the only hope. There's no other. That's very obvious, isn't it? But there is hope here. Why won't people believe it? Why do they reject it? Well, we're looking at some of the answers. We've seen that some won't even look at it because they say it's too old, played out, finished. (coughs) Belongs to the past. Bible, an anachronism in the modern world, therefore not even to be looked at. Others say that they're not interested because, surely, Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It's been given a very good chance in this world. They say if anything has ever been given a chance... It's not Christianity of yours. It's been preached now for nearly 2,000 years, yet look at the mess it's put us into. We've considered that. Then last Sunday night we were looking at this. We see that there are many who won't consider this because they know at once that it's got a fundamentally different outlook with regard to the cause of our troubles. It was our Armistice Night, Remembrance Sunday, whatever we call it, And here we were considering the fact of two world wars and death. And the question was, whence come wars among you? And we saw this fundamental cleavage. There's the outlook of the world, the non-biblical outlook, and here's the message of the Bible. And the Bible says they come from your lusts, that war within you. Not this man or that man, not something outside, something inside yourself. You have wars and fightings because you're creatures of lust controlled and governed by desires. But now, in considering that, we saw that we were immediately face to face with the question of uh, what is man himself? In considering the cause of war, we inevitably came up against this great question of man himself and his own nature. You see, the biblical view is that the cause of wars and fighting says that man's a creature of lusts; that he's not governed by reason that he's governed by instincts and impulses and desires, cravings, inordinate affections. Well, that's obviously something which is very radical, and it's that subject that we have to continue with this evening. Because here, in a way, is the key to the whole situation. What is man? What is the truth about man himself? Now, there is no doubt, I say, whatsoever, but that all our difficulties eventuate, ultimately, from our failure to be right about this particular question. It's central. It's no use considering the particular problems until we are clear about man himself. His nature, his being, his purpose, his destiny, and all that is true of him. And therefore, I say this being such a central and a vital question and a key (laughs) to most other questions, we obviously must consider it very carefully. That's what I want to do this evening. And I want to do it in terms of this particular text, these two verses that I've just read out to you, because here in these verses, our Lord himself deals with that very question. And as you observe, he deals with it in a way that makes it uh, very up-to-date and very modern. He's anticipating here, in a sense, the very condition of men at this present hour. Now, let me remind you of the circumstances. He was sending out his disciples to preach and to cast out devils. But he felt it was necessary to warn them as they went that they must expect to meet certain difficulties. He doesn't send them out in a carefree manner, Just to go out and preach, you'll have a marvelous time, everything's going to be wonderful. No, no, he warns them, warns them very seriously. He says, you'll meet opposition. Don't think for a moment that everybody's going to like what you're saying. They won't. They'll hate you. Indeed, he says, you've got to be prepared for this. Not mere opposition, not mere persecution. You've got to face the possibility and the eventuality of your being put to death. Because you are my servants, my followers, and because you are preaching my message. Why does he tell them this? Why does he warn them in this way? Well, it's made quite plain. He knew that the danger was this, that they would be so afraid of death that they might be tempted to compromise the message, indeed they might be tempted to go even further and to deny him. That's why he tells them, you see, that they are not to fear because uh, if the God who cares for the sparrows cares for them, the very hairs of their head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, he says, ye are of more value than many sparrows. And then goes on to say this, also I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the son of men also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. Now that's it. That's the temptation. In other words, he saw this quite clearly. That the fear of death can be such a powerful thing that it can make a man deny the Lord himself. That in order to save their lives, to save their skin as it were, they would not only compromise with the truth but would even deny him. Well now, he prophesies that. We've got an instance of it of course in the case of the apostle Peter. You remember when our Lord was arrested and put on trial? Peter, with his natural impulsiveness and curiosity, wanted to hear the trial. So he goes into the court to listen. And he's challenged by a servant maid. She said, you belong to him. And he denied it. He did it three times, you remember. And he even did it the last time with oaths and cursing. He denied that he knew the Lord Jesus Christ. His greatest friend, his greatest benefactor. What made him do it? Fear of death. Fear of death. Now this, our Lord is teaching here, can be such an overpowering thing that it may make us do something that will affect our eternal destiny. If we deny him, he will deny us before the angels in heaven, and therefore we are lost. In other words, the theme that he takes up here is just this theme of the fear of death. The great question of 1961, isn't it? The fear of death, the bombs. There they are, they've got them on both sides. What if they let them off? That's been the great subject this year, hasn't it? The fear of death. But you see, our Lord shows us how to deal with it. And he teaches very plainly that there is only one true way of dealing with it. And what I want to do with you this evening is to show you how our Lord deals with this most modern, up-to-date question of the fear of death, this thing that is obsessing this generation, this time in which you and I are living, here is the only way truly to face it. Now let's observe his teaching. The matter divides itself up, as I see, very naturally and inevitably into two main sections. First of all, let's observe how he deals with it in general, his whole approach to it, and then we'll be able to come to the particular. Now, look at it in general. Notice what our Lord doesn't do here. What, what, what do we not find here? Well, we don't find anything that can be described under the heading of escapism. There's nothing like that here. That's what some people are turning to, escapism. it's too horrible to think of this, so they refuse to think. They just want to be happy for the moment. So you mustn't talk about these things. You mustn't mention death. All that matters is that I should be happy, that I should be having a good time, and that I should be enjoying myself. It isn't that. You know, the Christian church is not a place into which you come just to forget your troubles. Many people have used it like that, and sometimes they've been encouraged to do that. No, no, the business of the Christian church is not to provide entertainment for people in order that for the while they may forget their troubles. That's what they do in the public houses. That's what they're for. That's nothing but sheer escapism. Any man who takes to drink to try and forget his troubles and to make himself feel happy is just an escapist. Nothing else at all. Oh, I know they talk about it as if it was wonderful, the most marvelous thing to do. That's why we're hearing so much about it. But the answer is it's pure escapism. But that's not the business of the Christian church. The church is not here to entertain, just to help people to forget for a while and make them feel happy while they're here and then go back and face it all. That's not Christianity. This is not some kind of drum. This is not some kind of supper riffing. This is not a, uh, just helping people to forget their troubles, pull down the blinds and persuade yourself that everything is wonderful and happy. That's not it. That's a travesty of it. It's a libel it. Neither do I find here that he just administers some general comfort to them. Of course, everybody wants to be comforted. It's a nice thing to be comforted when you're in trouble, but it can be a very dangerous thing. When you've got an illness, you shouldn't go to your doctor wanting comfort. You should go to him to get an accurate diagnosis, to know what's the matter with you, in order that you can be put right. He's a poor doctor who just pats you on the back says, it's all right, who hasn't even examined you, and doesn't really know what's the matter with you. Not general comfort. That again is not the business of the church. She's not here just to, oh, make people feel nice and happy while they're here. Church service singing hymns. And, well, after all, isn't life wonderful? And somehow or other it's all going to be all right. That's not Christianity. That again is a travesty. It? It's a denial of it. It's not the truth. And there's nothing like that in our Lord's teaching. There's nothing like that in the teaching of the Bible anywhere. No, and thirdly, we don't find this. We don't find that what our Lord proposes to do is to change the conditions. He sends them out saying, now look here, there will be enemies, and they may not only persecute you, but they may may even try to put you to death. Now he doesn't say, now the thing to do is to change these men somehow or other, so that they won't do that to you. He doesn't start a campaign, as it were, to stop these men from doing this, from threatening them and from killing them. That isn't what he does at all. And as I've been pointing out almost every Sunday night since we began this particular consideration, the Bible never does that. The Bible doesn't promise us that it's going to change the world. It doesn't tell us that it's going to help us by getting us to change the circumstances. It doesn't promise us that the circumstances are going to be changed ever. Indeed, it says the exact opposite. This is the teaching of this Bible. In the world, you shall have tribulations. Now then, that's the Christian message. It isn't the Bible, you see, that offers to put things right, or to do something to them that will take the problem away from us, and we won't have to face it. That's not Christianity. Christianity. No, I'm saying that's not Christianity. That doesn't mean to say that a Christian man shouldn't become a politician and do the best he can to restrain evil. Let him do all he can along that line. But I say this message is not to do that. It's not primarily to change the circumstances and conditions because we have no vestige of a promise that they ever are going to be changed in such a way that you and I will not have to face this great question. Never, I say, do we find that. Well now then, if that is what he doesn't do, what does he do? Well, here it is. Look at it. The first thing he does is to show us the terrible danger of allowing ourselves to be governed and controlled by facts and events. That's what he's anticipating, and that's why he's, That's what he's trying to safeguard these men from. The danger is, you see, that you go out into the world and you preach or whatever we have to do, And suddenly we are confronted by circumstances that are inimical, and the danger is that we allow them to govern us and control us. And they so govern us and control us and dominate us that we can't think clearly. That's what he's concerned about. Now, this is the essence of the Christian message. A Christian is a man who no longer is dominated by life and its attendant circumstances, but who masters it and who controls it. Here is this thing here on the very surface. He says your danger is just going to be there. That, that you'll be so terrified of this possibility of death you'll see the persecution coming and the people against you, and you'll be so dominated by it you'll deny me. Don't allow yourselves, he says, to be dominated by facts and circumstances. You've got to be master of them. Here's the essence of the whole of the biblical and the Christian teaching. Now you see the relevance of all this today. It's very difficult, isn't it, to do this? Every newspaper you pick up, there it is. The same thing on the wireless television. Discussions on it. These different programs make their investigations. Tell us all about these bombs and their power. Give us pictures and show people in America in shelters and so on. And here it is always on top of us. And the danger is, I say, we become dominated and we don't know where we are. And we become terrified and alarmed. Now, the whole object of Christian teaching is to deliver us from the tyranny and the thraldom and the domination of circumstances and events and facts. Secondly, having thus laid it down that we mustn't be dominated in that way, he then gets us to face the facts quite honestly and squarely. Far from that escapism or entertainment or anything else or this vague general comfort, he gets us to face the facts. There's no more realistic book in the world than the Bible. No man ever spoke more plainly to his followers than the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember a man came running after him one afternoon. He said, I'm going to be your disciple. I'm going to follow wherever you go. Wait a minute, says our Lord. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. You ready for that? He warns them. He says, if they've hated me, they'll hate you. If they've called me Beelzebub, what shall they say about you? If they've done this, in the green tree or stick, what shall they do in the dry? Here it is, sheer realism. He gets them to face the facts honestly and squarely. And I've been trying to repeat this. Here is a book, I say, that far from promising us a life of ease and of happiness and that Christianity is going to abolish war and bombs and all the world's going to be happy and embracing one another... Because there's a world council of churches or anything else that Christians are going to do, it says the exact opposite. There shall be wars and rumors of wars. While men's a sinner, this world's going to be a difficult and a terrible place. It's this present evil world. That's Christianity. You don't get that in your newspapers. You don't get it anywhere except in this book. Thank God for something that's honest. And it tells us the plain, unvarnished truth about ourselves and about life in this world. And then it goes on, he goes on to the third point, which is this. That having thus now got us to face the thing and not run away or seek some escape somewhere, anywhere. He said, there it is, look straight at it now. Then he says, I'll teach you now how to think clearly about it show you now how to think right through having seen the thing. I'll show you that there's a way to think right through so that you'll come out conquerors and you won't be frightened and terrified and you won't be dominated but you'll stand on your feet and you'll follow me as men and you'll go through to a final triumph. Now that's it. He teaches them how to think in his own way. Now then I sum it all up by putting it like this therefore that all fear and panic with respect to life and death is ultimately due to wrong thinking and a lack of understanding of certain vital truths. That's the principle. Running right through this whole discourse, even in the parable that he speaks at the end about that wretch fool. Wrong thinking. Wrong thinking about these things and wrong understanding of certain vital truths is always the cause of panic and of fear, of terror and alarm and of failure in life. Very well. There is how he puts it in general. Let us come to the particulars. Man's troubles, according to our Lord's teaching here and everywhere else, Men's troubles, and especially his fear of death, are due ultimately to an entirely false view which man takes of himself. That's his real trouble. Man's way of thinking about himself is so wrong that he tends to fail at all these various points and ultimately fails entirely. How? Well, it works like this. Because man has a fundamentally wrong view of himself, he becomes concerned about the wrong problems and spends his time in facing the wrong questions. That's his trouble. You see, if you start with a wrong view of yourself, well, you'll be wrong everywhere else. And so, you see, man is led to concentrate on the things that are not really of primary importance and to ignore the things that are of primary and of fundamental importance. Let me show you that. This is what I want to illustrate in detail. But do hold on to the principle. It's such a vital one. What's your view of yourself? Very well, that's going to determine what you think about. And if you've got a wrong view of yourself, you'll be facing the wrong questions, you'll be concerned and alarmed about the wrong problems, and in the meantime, you'll not be considering the really important things at all. Listen, here's the first way. Our Lord says here that a man in this condition, dominated by the fear of death, is a man who thinks of himself only in terms of his body and not in terms of his soul. Fear not them, he says, which be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear, fear him which, after he hath killed, hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Now, the parallel passage in in the gospel according to St. Matthew in chapter 10, uh, puts it still more explicitly when he puts it like this. Fear him which hath power to cast both soul and body into hell. It's here implicit, of course. He is Fear him which, after he hath killed, hath power to cast into hell. What goes to hell? Well, it isn't the body, it's the soul. You'll find it there in Matthew's gospel, chapter 10, and in verse 28. Fear not them which kill the body but are not able to kill the soul but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. It's a parallel statement. And here it is implicit here. Now this I say is the first way in which men because he takes this wrong view of himself goes wrong in his thinking. He thinks of himself only in terms of his body and doesn't think at all about his soul. Now if there was anything That is more true of the modern men than anything else. It is just this very thing. We are living in a secular and in a materialistic age. And the result is that man thinks of himself only in terms of his body. It's the thing that is obsessing the thinking of men at the present time. That's why there's all this concentration on death, you see, as I'm going to show you. It's the body, it's the life of the body they're thinking about. But it's true all round. There are so many in the world tonight who are interested in nothing but in pleasure, gratification of bodily desires. That's life to them. Well, that's life to them because that's men to them. What is men? Well, their idea of man is that he's some sort of an animal. They even boast of it. That. That's why they boast of evolution. Wonderful to think that man's only an animal. And as an animal, well, of course, his business in this life and this world is to gratify his desires and his instincts. And that's what they're doing. And that's the whole of their life. They're living only in terms of the body and the gratification of the various desires of the body. So they're concerned about nothing but pleasure, so-called, and happiness, so-called. There are thousands of people like that. You see, that's why tonight, though the world is as it is, there are people sitting back and looking at their television sets and roaring with laughter at the tomfoolery and drunkenness and adultery and things like that. That's what explains that sort of lunacy, and all who in any way are living to the mere body in the gratification of their baser instincts. But there are others of whom we can't say that, perhaps, if we are to be quite honest. We've got to grant that they're serious people, but still, there are many serious people who are not Christians, who are quite as materialistic in their outlook as those others. Not so blatant, not so obvious, but... When you come to analyze it, it's exactly the same thing. Some of the most respectable people in the country tonight are purely materialistic and secular in their outlook. They've done well. They've got a wife and family, good bank balance, nice house, nice motor car. And the terrible thing is that these bums may take it all from me, may lose it all. Which isn't this open, riotous pleasure, but... It's equally secular, it's equally bodily, it's equally materialistic. It all really is concerned only about my life in this world, and life as it expresses itself through the various faculties and powers of the body. Oh, material possessions, this is what we're all interested in. Money, more wages... Getting a fortune out of the football pools. This is wonderful. Everybody gets excited and thrilled. It's front page news. Well, Why? Well, because this is life, you see, to such people. The body. It's the life in the body, this world. And everything that can help the body. Wonderful gadgets, machinery. Look at the advances. Isn't it wonderful? And we sit back and we enjoy it all. What a pity, what a tragedy that these bombs are coming and suddenly going to smash it all and take it all from us. That's the mentality. This materialistic outlook thinking only in terms of the body and what the body can enjoy and what the body can do. Well, if you went even higher up the scale and came to your great philosophers, you'll find that they're in exactly the same category. They're not interested in anything ultimately except the well-being of men in the body in this world. And all their thinking and all their arguing is concerned about that. Some of them want to bring in a utopia. The philosophers have always been trying to draw blueprints of utopia. It's been going on from the early days and has come down the centuries. But what is utopia? Well, utopia is nothing but life in this world. Perfect if you can make it so. Get a perfect political state. Get a state in which there are no taxes and no work to do in the end, but everything works so harmoniously, no troubles, no wars, utopia. Yes, but it's, uh, it's really only a life for the body, and the gratification of the desires of the body. Isn't this true of men today? Isn't the whole of thinking determined by the body at this hour? Are not all the anxieties about this body of ours? And how little we hear about the soul. Man doesn't think about the soul. That's what our Lord is saying here. Don't fear those who can only kill the body. There's somebody who can send your soul to perdition. Here's the one to fear. Why, well, the soul? What's this? What's the soul? Is there anybody in this congregation who's never thought about the soul? If so, it means that you've only lived to your body. I don't care how much you've thought and how many books and philosophy you've read. If you've not been concerned about your soul... You've been thinking only about the body and living only for the body. What is the soul? Well, it's this inner man of ours. It's this immaterial, intangible something that is in us and a part of us. Something that we can't see and we can't analyze, but we know it's here. This is my being itself. This is that within me that is bigger than the world itself and bigger than life. This is that in men which enables him when he realizes it is in him and when he treats it as he should, that makes him independent of the world, that you can cut off all his pleasures, take away all his money, take everything, even life itself, he's still all right, the soul. What is it? Well, it's this within me that is ever crying out for an ample ether, diviner air. It's that within me which tells me that dust thou art to dust returnest was not spoken of the soul. What are these aspirations that I know of, that I feel within me at times? That's something that tells me that I'm not a mere creature of time and that I'll go on forever and forever. Can you conceive of yourself as ending? You can't. Why can't you? Well, because you've got a soul in you. It's imperishable. It goes on. It's this part of man which is spiritual. It's this part of man that makes him dissatisfied, which makes him know when he's really thinking truly that if you gave him everything the world's got to give him, he'd still be dissatisfied. Because money can't satisfy this, nothing can, which comes solely to the body. He cries out for the living God, as a wise man puts it in the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, you know, this in a sense is the whole trouble with men. Thou hast put eternity within him, in his heart. And man has a a vague awareness of this, a dim realization thats that there is something within him which is bigger than this body that he exists apart from the body that he exists apart from things something that cries out for something bigger and beyond himself and beyond life, beyond men and beyond the world the soul but the modern man doesn't think about his soul He only thinks about the body. That's why he's terrified of death. That's why he's so concerned and obsessed by the bombs. He's always looking at death. Death, well, because he knows nothing about the soul that is within him. That's his first error. And it all is due, you see, to a false view of himself. He regards himself as just a body. Everything he says can be explained in physical terms. Man is only a reasoning animal after all. And even the brain is material. And thought is a kind of secretion of the brain. It's all physical, all material, and thus you have your secular materialistic outlook and the soul is forgotten. That's one thing, but let me hurry to a second. The second thing that it makes men do is this. It makes him think of himself solely in in his relationship to men and not at all in his relationship to God. Same thing, you see. Starts with this wrong view and it leads him to that. So our Lord says, I say to you, my friends, be not afraid of them that killed the body and after that have nothing that they can do. That's men. But I will tell you, forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him. This is God. This isn't the devil. The devil hasn't got the power of hell. It's God who has this. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. This is the great message of the Bible. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But we don't have it today. The world isn't interested. The world thinks of nothing but man. And all its fears and anxieties are due to its over-preoccupation with man and what man can do. Isn't this true all round? Most people's lives are governed by what other people think. Even short of war, if there were no bombs, man would still be a slave because he'd be afraid what other people think. What will they say? What will they say if I do this? There are people who reject God because of that, reject Christ. What will they say? What will they say at home? What will they say in the office? Men, fear of men. Man, you see, is what counts, the opinion of man. What's man going to say about me? And then what man's going to do to me? This is the serfdom and the slavery of modern men. He thinks he's shaken God off and he's become a slave to men. He lives constantly, I say, in terms of men. What they think, what they say, what they propose, what they may do. Man may suddenly send off these bums and we're finished. Man, the power of man, what a terrible thing. And we're all obsessed by it and always thinking about it. Oh, it's tragic. I rather like the way in which our Lord puts it here. Did you notice it? Be not afraid of them that kill the body... And after that have no more that they can do. Isn't that wonderful? Have you ever thought of the limit to what men can do? Oh, but look at his rockets, you said. Look at how he's developed them. Look at the brilliant advances of this present year. Look how they're piling them up. What if they let... Look at the power of men, the power of bombs. Look at our Lord's contempt for it all. He just dismisses it all. This which is being talked of so much and even preached about. Oh, may God have pity and compassion and mercy upon the modern church that spends its time in talking about men and what men can do. Listen to our Lord's contempt. They, he says, can kill the body, but after that have no more that they can do. My dear friends, it's about time we begin to remind ourselves of what men can't do to us. Oh, I know he can destroy the body. <laughs> But thank God he can't touch the most precious things in life. Man has got no power to rob me of the most beautiful and the most wonderful things I've ever known. He can't touch them. All you've ever experienced when you've been at your best, no man can rob you of those. There are certain golden hours in the life of every human individual, no bomb can rob you of those. The love of a dear one. What you may have seen when you looked into the face of a little child. Or some beautiful view you had once of nature in her glory. No bombs can touch these things. These are imperishable. Man can't touch them. Why are you so afraid of men? He can only destroy the body. He can't touch these things the highest, the noblest, the most wonderful things. He can't come near them. He's got no power of them, no more that he can do. I mustn't keep you. Work it out for yourselves oh how foolish we are to be so afraid of men yes but particularly when it leads us you see to forget the other thing that matters and that is the fear of God while the whole world is afraid of man and his power tonight he doesn't give a thought to God but this is what our Lord says here's the one to fear him that after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell yea I say unto you fear him man can do nothing to your soul he can't touch it For here is one who deals with your soul. Here's the tragedy of today, the failure to think about God. My business is to preach about God, my friends, not about Khrushchev nor Kennedy, nor about men and their bums, nor what the statesmen are doing. That's not my business. My business is to tell a world that's gone mad about God. God whom they've forgotten in their preoccupation with men church which preaches politics is denying her master's message. The greatest need of the world is to know about God. And what are we to know about him? Well, his almightiness. We are all in the hands of God. We are not in the hands of men, thank God. But we are in the hands of God. He made us, not we ourselves. He controls us. He can put an end to us at any moment. He can end the whole world whenever he likes. Everything is under his mighty, almighty control and power. Nothing happens apart from God. Did you notice it? Even a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without God. Everything. He's the maker, creator, sustainer, artificer, controller of the whole universe. And everybody and everything is in the hands of God. My life, my end, my times, my everything. Yes, but especially, he is the judge, the judge eternal, the judge of the whole world, the judge of the whole earth. This is what people forget, and this is why all their thinking goes wrong. In their preoccupation with men, they forget That they've got to stand before God in the judgment. Now, it's a message that is here in the Bible from the very beginning to the very end. Man, my friend, is a responsible being. And we shall all be held responsible by God. We've all got to stand before him in judgment. It is appointed unto all men once to die, and after death the judgment. What will you be judged on? Well, let me just put it like this, you will be judged in terms of what you've done with your soul. The soul is that which God put into men to make him like himself. He made in his own image and likeness. The soul, that's it. He gave us a soul, he made us a living soul. The judgment will be in terms of, what have I done with my soul? God made it possible for me to have fellowship with him in communion. I was meant to represent him to be Lord of creation. I was meant to enjoy his companionship and his company. I was meant to live entirely to his glory. That's the purpose of the soul. And I shall be judged in terms of that. And every one of us has got to face that judgment. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power. God's got the power. You can't escape the law of this land. You can't escape the law of God. It's infinitely more powerful. God is the lawgiver. He's the judge eternal. And you and I and every one of us will have to stand before God and give an account of the deeds done in the body. Every one of us is responsible. And every one of us will have to give an account. Every one. That's what the world doesn't think about at all. If only all men in the world realized tonight that they've got to stand before God and are held responsible and to give an account of their lives, all your problems would immediately disappear. We'd all fall down before him and there'd be no war and no threat of war. The world has forgotten God in its preoccupation with men. It faces the wrong problems. Oh, what's man going to do to me? What's he going to do to my body? That's not the question. What about your soul? What about God who will judge the soul? And lastly, this uh, central fallacy leads men to think of himself only in relationship to time and not at all in his relationship to eternity and so leads him to neglect the destiny of his soul. Be not afraid of them that kill the body and after that that they have no more that they can do. They can kill your body but they finish them. They don't go beyond the grave. That's the last thing that man can do. He can destroy your body and then he's finished. He doesn't do anything once you've lost your life, once you're dead. He's finished. Man can go no further. But there is one, I say, who goes further. There is one who can affect our eternal destiny. But man doesn't think about eternity. He thinks only in terms of time. And it is because he forgets his soul and forgets God and forgets eternity that he is in misery and fear of death and the bombs and the the killing of the body and always talking about it and thinking that Christianity's business is to save the body. It isn't. It's to save the soul. But this is how it works, isn't it? Man forgetting these things, thinks only of life in this world. This world is the only world to him. See, that's why your old infidel philosopher is so concerned about this. He doesn't know anything about life beyond the grave. He doesn't believe in a soul. He doesn't know about eternity. So, of course, he's got to concentrate on preserving the body. It's his colossal ignorance. It's his blindness and darkness that leads him and all who follow him to do the same. They live only for life in this world. Existence in this world is the great thing. And death, it's the last calamity. It's a terrible thing, death. Why? Well, it's the end of everything. And there's nothing beyond. So, you see, the supreme problem today is to save life in this world, to save the body, to save the life of the body, and to avoid death at all costs. Death is the last calamity. It's the last and the ultimate tragedy. That's how man thinks. And he doesn't think at all about eternity. But my dear friend, eternity is the real fact. This is a world of shadows. This is a world of appearances. This is only a temporary world. This is the world of the things that are seen. The things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. This is but a shadowy world, a transitory world. The real world is the world that is unseen, the spiritual and eternal realm. Our Lord directs attention to that, you see. Not time. Time wasn't a big thing to our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. It was eternity. He was only in this world about thirty-three years. What is time? It's nothing. It's only a stage, a transitory stage of preparation. It's eternity that matters? Why? Well because eternity is endless. This life at best is not endless. Even if you abolish war and bombs, we'd still have to die. It's a transient temporary world. We are but strangers and pilgrims here. But eternity is endless. No end at all. And man when he dies, goes on into eternity. Yes, and remember that in eternity, says our Lord. there are two possibilities. When you stand before the judge eternal, when you stand before God, you'll be sent one direction or the other. There are only two, but there are two. Hell and heaven. Fear him, which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. My dear friends, this isn't my teaching. How can I know about these things? I'm simply repeating to you the teaching of the Son of God. The teaching which is in this book from beginning to end. Heaven and hell. What is hell? Well, here it is. You see, he hath power to cast into hell, or as the parallel puts it in Matthew 10, 28, hath power to destroy both soul and body in hell. What is hell? Well, the Apostle Paul talks about it as the enduring eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord. It's to be outside the life of God, endlessly, everlastingly. Our Lord says it's a place where there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. I'm not saying that. It's Christ who said it. It's the Son of God. If you know better, well, I've no more to say to you. That's what he said. He was incarnate love. Look at him. Look at his person. Look at his deeds. Here's incarnate love. Here is God in the flesh. It was he who said, That there is the place where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. He says it's a place where their worm dieth not. And the fire is not quenched. He describes it in Luke 16 in his parable of Dives and Lazarus. As a place of torment. A kind of flame. An agony of its suffering. And what is more terrible still is this. In that same parable he teaches this. That there is no hope of change. The rich man dives in hell lifted up his face and he saw poor Lazarus, the tramp, in Abram's bosom, enjoying great happiness. And here was he in hell suffering. He says, can't I come there? The answer that was given him was this, there's a great gulf fixed. No traffic between hell and heaven. It's your eternal destiny. It goes on forever and forever without end, without intermission, without any a hope of change. It's this sort of world, but ten times worse and going on and on and on forever and forever and forever without any end ever, ever. Hell. If you want to fear, says our Lord, fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Who will he cast there? All those who haven't lived to his glory. All those who have despised the soul that is within them and have lived only for the body. All those who have broken his holy laws and have spat in his face and have prided themselves in their knowledge and their understanding and have refused his revelation. They're the ones that go there. And that's the kind of place to which they go. The modern world doesn't think about it. It thinks about bombs. But what can the bomb do? Well, at the worst. All it can do is to put an end to the life of my body. It can't do any more. The bomb can kill me, but it can't do any more to me. But here, I'm confronted with something that can affect my everlasting and eternal destiny and put me in a place called hell, forever and forever, without any hope of ever getting out or any relief or intermission. That's the thing to fear. But thank God I don't have to leave it at that. There's another possibility. Why fear him has power to throw me into hell? Well, because he can also tell me to go to heaven, to the other place. What is this? Oh, who can describe it? We can't. It's beyond any imagination. It baffles every description it means to be with Christ. It means to be with God. It means to be with the holy angels and the spirit of just men made perfect. It's a place where there is no sorrow, there is no sin, there is no weeping. There is no remorse and repentance, there is no unhappiness. There is no selfishness, there is no war, there is no unhappiness. It is everlasting glory, it is eternal bliss. That's the other possibility. But the world isn't interested The world is so concerned about preserving its little life in this world that it's not thinking at all about the everlasting and eternal destiny of its soul. Having a good time here, knowing nothing about having a good time, if you like, throughout all the countless ages of eternity. Isn't this tragic? That's why men are so afraid of bombs and so afraid of death. They know nothing about the glories of heaven and about the glories of eternity. Didn't you sing that him with meaning just now? Let me remind you of what it tells you. This is the Christian attitude. The Christian is a man, you see, is not afraid of death for this reason, that he knows that death and all that it has has been conquered once and forever. He is no longer living in a state of terror because of these things. Let me remind you of what you were singing just now. How easy it is to sing, how difficult to believe. Jesus lives. Thy terrors now can, O death, No more, Apollos. Jesus lives. By this we know. Thou, O grave, canst not enthrall us. Jesus lives. Henceforth is death. What is it? Some people to be terrified and alarmed and do everything even deny Christ in order to evade it. Not at all. Jesus lives. Henceforth is death. But the gate of life immortal. This shall calm our trembling breath. When we pass its gloomy portal. Jesus lives. For us he died. Then alone to Jesus living. Pure in heart may we abide. Glory to our saviour giving. Here it is. Jesus lives our hearts. No well nought from his love shall sever. Life nor death nor powers of hell. Let me add nor bonds nor war. Nor man at his damnedest can touch us. Tear us from his keeping. Never. Jesus lives. To him the throne over all the world is given. May we go where he is gone. Rest and reign with him in him. Oh, the tragedy of being so obsessed by time that we forget eternity and the two dread possibilities. And finally, you see, it leads to this, that men ignore and deny and reject the only one who can save our souls and deliver us from the fear of hell and ensure us of a safe arrival in heaven. This is how Christ puts it. Whosoever loveth his life in this world shall lose it, but whosoever hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. That's his teaching. But look at him himself. There you see the teaching incarnated in his blessed person. What if he had thought that the death of the body was the last calamity? What if he'd done everything to avoid being put to death? We'd all go to hell. We'd all be damned. We'd all be without a hope. But he didn't think of himself. The death of the body was not to him the last calamity. He came into the world in order to die, to give his life a ransom for many. Thank God he knew, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set at the right hand of God in the glory. No, no. Defense of the body, keeping the body. Life in this world was not to him everything. Thank God he laid down his life. Not to preserve the lives of our bodies, but to preserve and to save our souls and make us heirs of that everlasting bliss and that eternal glory. My dear friend, What have you of yourself. Are you thinking only of your body? Are you thinking only of men? Are you thinking only of time? Listen to the Lord Jesus Christ. The soul, God, eternity. And then think of him. He came to save you from the possibility of hell. He died that you might be forgiven. He died to make you a child of God and an heir of this eternal glory. He gave his body to be broken willingly, readily, his blood to be shed. That you and I might be insured of dwelling in the glories of everlasting life with him and with his Father. What a tragedy that men should be so negligent, I say, of the soul and of God and of time that they reject this Christ and deny him and don't realize what they're doing. They're afraid of the wrong thing. They're afraid of men. They're afraid of the death of the body. And they're not afraid of God. They're not afraid of hell. They're not afraid of eternal misery for their immortal soul. Is it clear to you, my friend? Well, if so, turn to God acknowledging your folly. Realize the importance of the soul. Humble yourself before God. Acknowledge and confess your sin. And believe his message concerning his dear son in and through whom and his death he offers you complete (laughs) forgiveness and pardon, a new life, a new nature, To lead you through the rest of your life in this world. And finally, to receive you into an everlasting habitation. Amen.